when one of you recommended the word wisdom as our word of the week, I was excited. This is an intriguing word. And then as I started to read more and more in the scriptures, it shouldn't surprise me, but it was a little disappointing. This word is very complicated. And if you have ever sat through a Presbyterian sermon before, that should not be surprising. We love to dig into theology and context and philosophy behind things, but still, I offer up this word to you, back to you, as a complicated word with a lot of different nuances. So let us look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 through 25. Let us listen for the word of the Lord. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So indeed, as we can hear in Paul's words here to the Corinthians and in Isaiah's words that Tom read, wisdom is not an unabashedly positive thing in the scriptures. As we can hear, there are many times when God calls wisdom foolishness and promises to get rid of it. But who doesn't want to be wise? We might find ourselves thinking Who doesn't want to gather in wisdom? It is the wish for which one would rub the genie's lamp in all the stories. It is what makes us sing songs to wise old Solomon. Wisdom fills countless legends and fables, most of which involve treks to high mountaintops where sage old men with long flowing beards are at the top. And yet, wisdom as it is written about in the scriptures, as it appears throughout biblical times, is really quite complicated. Here's a little more context about the time that Paul is writing. In the ancient Hellenistic and Jewish world, great debaters and orators of the age were revered for their way with words. They were celebrities on par with the way we flock to singers and sports heroes these days. These orators and debaters would gather huge crowds who wanted to be awed and entertained by the speaker's skill with rhetoric and knowledge. This is what was often called wisdom, and it was an important part of cultures that were influenced by the Greeks. They prized this training, this skill of knowledge, of wisdom, of sophia in the Greek word. How it is, however, it is no accident that the word sophistry, or the art of using deceptive speech and writing and false arguments, also is related to this Greek word for wisdom, sophia. 
the Greeks saw a slippery slope between wise words and tricky manipulation. When a celebrated orator draws crowds who are ready to be awed, it could be a seductive power. Sometimes such a speaker will then begin to say anything to keep such a crowd, to make promises that will keep the crowd entertained, to keep them coming back to hear the speaker. This world of the celebrity speaker is a world where words could quickly become weapons, sharpened and brandished in order to impress the listeners, make them feel superior to others who are not in the room. In Paul's time, all knew that words had power. And those who wield words in front of crowds had power. And we can still perhaps see this in our current world, particularly during this endless election season. In the ancient world, those who drew such crowds, these celebrated orators were called wise and deemed worthy of admiration, and the Apostle Paul wants nothing to do with this. He wants nothing to do with this way of being wise. He wants a different view of wisdom and power. So Paul bluntly brings up the cross as a counterpoint as a counter-argument to those who enjoy this certain brand of celebrity wisdom. Paul lifts up the cross as something worth talking about, worth remembering. But it is worth noting again that he is in a culture where the cross is an example of humiliating capital punishment by oppressive Roman officials. Paul is trying to say something different by bringing up the cross, something different about power and knowledge, about words and being wise and following God in a complicated world. Paul brings up the cross in his letter, and he must have seemed like such a killjoy or a wet blanket. After all, who wants to talk about the cross? Who wants to think about an instrument of torture? The people in the early church, in the church of Corinth, would probably much rather talk about the wise and witty sayings of Jesus rather than his death and humiliation. People probably would have much rather recalled the days when Jesus drew huge crowds as a celebrated teacher rather than remember when he died abandoned, hanging as a criminal. Paul should probably realize that in order to get the crowds to listen to you, to be amazed by your way with words and wisdom, you should never bring up the cross. Negative stuff like that will halt any exciting speech in its tracks. It would be like showing up to be entertained at a concert and hearing about waterboarding or a lynching tree. It would be like showing up to watch a sports game and being confronted by our own country's legacy of racism embedded in verses in the national anthem. But Paul brings up the cross, and he knows exactly what he is doing. He is forcing the church in Corinth to think about the way they understand punishment and power, wisdom and worthiness. He is forcing the church to look at Jesus and admit that God's way of finding adoration and admiration are very different from the ways that the culture is promising. Paul is turning to those who claim to be wise and full of wisdom and knowledge, those who pull crowds to them, and he is saying, no, 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 no. Despite what you think, 
you all will not have the final word. Paul is making what sounds like an outlandish statement full of nonsense and foolishness. But we can all know the Apostle Paul never backs down from a good argument. And so he concludes with something like this. You all don't know what you're talking about. God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than any human strength. And then you can practically hear him drop the mic. Wisdom is complicated. And the scripture writers want to make darn sure we don't get the wrong idea about what it means to be wise. They want to make sure we know that wisdom isn't about our individual human knowledge, about anyone's ability to wield words or prove their powers of persuasion. True wisdom, wisdom to which we should aspire, is deeper and broader than we might originally picture. So now that I've painted a negative view of wisdom, I want to back up and look at wisdom from a different angle, from the other ways it is discussed in the scripture. There is a culture, yes, in the ancient world that revered a certain way of being wise, but there is also a strong tradition, particularly in the Hebrew scriptures, that values wisdom and a spirit of wisdom. Indeed, there are several books in our Hebrew scriptures, particularly Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, that are known as wisdom literature. And throughout the scriptures, there are many beautiful passages about the spirit of wisdom entering hearts and ruling lives. This spirit is real and valuable, and indeed, this spirit of wisdom that is named over and over again is one of the reasons the early church developed the theology of the Holy Spirit. The scriptures aren't saying that we followers of Christ should abandon all attempts to gain wisdom. But what we need to do is look again at what kind of wisdom we are seeking. Ellen Davis, a professor at Duke Divinity School, writes about wisdom in her great book, Getting Involved with God. She explains that the very idea of wisdom, as the Bible understands it, challenges the mindset of our society today. For us, knowledge is a form of power. My power depends on what I know, and here's the crucial point, what you do not know. This is fundamental to our whole professional and technological society, that my knowledge makes me worth more than you, makes me worthy of the raise or the praise or the professional advancement. This is something we've all internalized. But Davis points out, when the ancient Hebrew people write of gaining knowledge and wisdom, they do not write about it in terms of personal achievement. She writes, the Bible shows no interest whatsoever in abstract knowledge for personal advancement. Ancient Israel was not interested in any form of knowledge or wisdom that is abstracted from the very concrete problems of how we may live in kindness and fidelity with our neighbors, live humbly and faithfully in the presence of our God. In the end, in the scriptures, wisdom is not about the experience of one person. Wisdom requires a tradition, an accumulation of experience and insight. Wisdom takes time to be developed from the tree of human experience. Only then can we bear the fruit of wisdom. 
true wisdom in the scriptures is not about what we say or know. It's about how we live. It's about how we live out our relationship in real time with God and with each other. When we make wisdom about revering witty words or quick quips or rhetorical talking points that divide us, this wisdom is false and quickly becomes the focus of Paul's diatribes. When wisdom is about the collective experience of a community who are struggling to care for each other and to live faithfully and humbly in the presence of God, such wisdom is true and good and worth being treasured. Wisdom in the scriptures is not about sitting on our own, thinking deep thoughts, and then sharing them on Facebook. Wisdom is not about a great TED Talk that entertains and provokes us and then lets us go on and live our life same as usual. True wisdom is about finding the place where words and deeds intersect, where words can shape and mold and change us, showing us an entirely new way to live into the world. True wisdom is cultivated over years. It emerges in relationships with others, even others who look and act and think very differently from us. True wisdom is realizing that sometimes, unfortunately, we learn the most from the people we enjoy the least. This is the wisdom that looks so foolish in the ancient world and today, particularly in our election season. These are the words that sound like nonsense when spoken in a culture of celebrity and showmanship or Twitter followers. But as Paul points out, being Christian has never been about talking the good talk. We follow Jesus, the Son of God, who did not choose to entertain the crowds. He did not choose to remain enshrined in his local celebrity. Jesus is not about talking a good talk. He is willing to follow up his words all the way to death. He is willing to leave his home of 30 years and go to Jerusalem and receive a show trial and die and return again in order to show us something new about God and relationship and living in the world faithfully and lovingly. Jesus could have kept going with his popular teachings, confusing people at times, but still drawing a crowd of listeners who were impressed by his way with words. But instead, he decides to go to the cross. He decides to show us the point where words and deeds intersect, to show us the point where what he says about love and grace and being with us means dying scandalously. Following Jesus is not about showing up and listening to his words and then getting on with our lives. Following Jesus is about showing up and listening to these words and letting the words stick with us, letting these words in ways big and small begin to shape the way we think, the way we eat, the way we breathe and sleep and love and die. True wisdom is not about entertainment and persuasive arguments. True wisdom is about transformation. There is a lovely children's book called Grandpa's Soup, which I believe illustrates this view of wisdom through a story of meatballs and mice and soup pots. The story starts like this. After Grandma died, Grandpa was all alone. 
he felt too sad to do anything. Every day he would drink the milk that the milkman brought to his house, eat the bread that he bought at the store, and then just sit by himself. Every day, day after day, was the same. The illustration shows an old man in his bathrobe, half hidden in a chair, head in his hands. The lights are out in the room. There are empty milk bottles on the floor, and in the corner are a few withered flowers slumped in a vase. The story continues. Then one day, Grandpa woke up and said to himself, I want to eat hot soup. I want to eat again the meatball soup that my dear wife used to make for me. And so Grandpa looks around and he takes down the smallest soup pot in his kitchen and thinks to himself, since it will be just for me, this little pot will be big enough. He remembers that his wife used to sing a song when she made the soup. So he starts to sing to himself, trying to recall the words, boil the water, roll the meatballs around, Drop them in the water, plop. Add a little salt and pepper, add a little butter. That's all he can remember. So he gets dressed, leaves the house, and goes to the market for some meatballs and butter, for some salt and pepper. He returns to make his first batch of soup. Just as soon as his meatball soup is done, Grandpa hears a tip, tip, tip outside the kitchen door. There are three mice who have shown up hungry, smelling the good smells, asking to share the soup. Grandpa carefully pours the soup into three little saucers. There's only a little left over for him, so he eats it after the mice have left. And he muses to himself, my wife's soup tasted much better than this. I wonder why. He sets out the next day to try again. He decides to make the soup in a bigger pot in case the mice come back. He starts to remember more of the song his wife used to sing while making the soup. He remembers that she sang about cutting and peeling potatoes. So he sings that part of the recipe and adds peeled potatoes to the pot. As the soup is ready, he hears a knock at the door, and this time the three mice are back with a cat. Grandpa is surprised to see such strange friends getting along. But he goes ahead and divides up the soup. All the animals thank him. And afterwards, he finishes the leftover remains. The soup still isn't tasting the same as when his wife would make it. So Grandpa decides to try again tomorrow and make a bit more in case the mice and the cat come back. As you can imagine, day by day, as the story goes on, Grandpa starts to increase the amount of soup he makes. Day by day, the memory of his wife's recipe song comes back to him, and day by day, more creatures show up ready to eat his soup. One day, Grandpa decides to use his biggest pot. He has left his little pot behind, and when you look around, the lights are on in his kitchen and in his living room. There is a new vase of vibrant, living red flowers in the corner. He remembers all the words to his wife's recipe song. He works hard to make the soup, and then a whole gang of kids knock on the door. Grandpa is surprised again, but he counts all the bowls and the saucers and makes sure that everyone has a portion, including the mice. And he is waiting to have his typical leftovers after everyone leaves. But then one of the children asks, Grandpa, why don't you eat with us? Grandpa hesitates a moment, but then he agrees. He pulls in his chair from the living room, joining the merrily chaotic kitchen 
And then as he tastes the soup in the company of all of these dinner companions, at last he exclaims, it's good, it's delicious. Finally, just like the soup my dear wife used to make. And then he looks around at the remains of the dishes and says with a smile, well, tomorrow I'll just have to cook the soup using all my pots. The scriptures want us to see that true wisdom is meant to be experienced as words and deeds. Wisdom is not just meant to be a recipe of words that we leave on the shelf and are impressed by how good it sounds. Wisdom is meant to be the recipe that we take down, that we read, that we use to help us feed each other and feed ourselves. True wisdom is meant to be shared. It is not something we hoard on our own. It's not something we're supposed to get right all on our own. Sometimes, like Grandpa, we don't know the right thing to do, the right ingredients to use. Sometimes we need to get to work cooking the soup, stirring the pot, sharing the experience before we are able to remember all the words, before we know the whole recipe, before we understand true wisdom. Sometimes the words and wisdom of God only make sense to us after we leave worship and start to try to live them out faithfully and kindly in the world. So as we go forth into worship, into the days ahead, let us heed the words of Paul and let us not allow our faith or our church to become a space of entertainment or power games. Instead, let us create spaces for true wisdom, for sharing, for feeding each other and feeding our neighbor and feeding ourselves. Let us create spaces where we carry the words of worship out the door, seeing what sticks, seeing what continues to comfort, surprise, or even irritate us throughout the week. Let us pursue true wisdom by gathering together and sharing honest words about our joys and sorrows, our hopes and fears and doubts and questions. Let us do all of these things, knowing that we won't do everything perfectly or wisely or well, but knowing that when we do these things, we are following not only the words of Jesus, but the actions also. Jesus did not stop with the good talk, and neither should we. And then one day, perhaps we will finally break bread, share soup, and say, ah, yes, this, this is good and delicious. This is the wisdom that God is talking about. Let us pray. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Knit us together with love and hope and wisdom. Show us how to take your words out into the world and to live them today. Amen.